0: guys we are in uh luke's gospel if you need a bible raise your hand uh we're going to be in chapter nine um josh kind of stole my thunder i don't know if you knew this but yeah we're going to be in the uh the story of the feeding of the five thousand here <laughs> uh yeah luke nine, luke chapter nine verses seven to seventeen is uh where we're going to be camping out this week and then um We'll probably spend one more week in it next time. So let me read this. We'll pray and we'll we'll dive in for the morning. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that. One of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Or I'm sorry, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. God, I believe that in... um, What might be a familiar text. You have fresh encouragement. Fresh challenge. Fresh provision, fresh revelation for us. Gosh, I feel like I live out this text every week. As I come with not much to offer, and just beg the Lord to take it, multiply it, use it. As I just get to steward what you've accomplished, what you've done, who you are, bring it to your people. That everyone in this room. Needs to meet with you here in unique, personal, intimate ways that perhaps only you know about. Perhaps only you're aware. Could you say that we can make a run on your throne because of Christ and find grace to help in our time of need? And so we're just asking you, let let that grace come down. Let that man present in this room. Let the Savior broken for us. Be shared among us and satisfy our, our needy souls. To your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, interesting fact. Uh, so the miracle story. Uh, about the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only miracle apart from the resurrection, which you understand why that would be included. It's the only miracle apart from the resurrection that's included in all four Gospels. Um, there are a lot of miracles. There are a lot of amazing miracles. There are a lot of incredible things that Jesus has, has done. But this is the only one apart from the resurrection that all four Gospel writers submit. We have to include that. It, it made its mark, in other words, on the apostles, on the early church. And I pray that by the time we're done with this text, it will also have made its mark on us as well. Um, there are two important subjects being developed in this text Uh, That's kind of going to be where we divide this week and then the next time when I deal with this. Um, But the first subject really is kind of carrying on from what we saw back in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. Uh, Namely, if you recall, we spent plenty of time there, so I hope hope that you do. Uh, That is the point in Jesus' ministry when all of a sudden he turns to his disciples and says, Okay, now you guys are getting in the game. All right, you've been watching me for so long now, you've been seeing me, me heal, you've been hearing me preach, now you guys go. He's raising up his disciples, his apostles, the church, to carry on his mission and ministry in the world. Now this text will continue to develop that theme, that subject, and help us to kind of see what does this partnership with Christ in his mission and ministry actually look like? And what we'll come to see is that, man, it gives us one of the most vivid pictures of what ministry is in its essence, what you and I as Christian missionaries, so to speak, are doing. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning it's kind of dealing with this, but there is a second subject, um, that is being developed in this text and, uh, This one kind of carries on from what we saw last week, and I even did read those verses again this morning there in verses 7 through 9, where Herod uh, is, is wrestling with who Jesus is. And he's wrestling with it because it seems like the whole region, the whole world, as far as he's concerned, is wrestling with it. In fact, what we'll do next time is we'll just kind of look back and see how this question about Jesus' identity, who is this man who's doing these things, this question has been looming over the gospel of Luke for quite some time, and it's about to reach climax in Peter's confession and then God's validation of that confession on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. We you know who he is? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's who he is, the Christ. So the second subject being developed here is this idea of Jesus's identity, who he is, what he's come to do. And what we find out is that this whole miracle with the feeding of the 5,000 brings a lot of clarity to the matter, who, in fact, Christ is. That's what we'll look at more next time. You could say, um, essentially the two subjects would be these missiology, subject number one, the mission of the church, uh, and then Christology subject number two, the identity, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So today we pick up the missiology piece and we're going to move kind of verse by verse here. I'm going to organize my thoughts like I usually do under, um, these headings. Now I've got four of them for you. First, a perplexing question. A perplexing question, that's verses 7 through 9. Second, uh, a welcome interruption, that's verses 10 through 11. Third, a stubborn amnesia, that's verse 12. And then fourth and finally, a satisfying Savior, as we look at verses 13 to 17. So let's dive in here with a perplexing question there, verses 7 through 9. Um, Already mentioned it. But at the beginning of verse 7, we read this. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. He hears about what's going on, and he's confused. He's concerned. He's perplexed. He's, He's questioning here. And the essence of his question is, who is this Jesus I keep hearing about? Who is this guy? John the Baptist, raised from the dead? Elijah, come back. One of the other prophets from all. Who is Jesus? Now, presumably, Herod has heard about Jesus because of the apostolic mission that's been going down in verses 1 through 6. Where if you look at verse 6 right before this, we read that they went through the villages, these apostles. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they're going all over the place doing awesome stuff telling people about Christ, whatever it is, preaching and healing. And it seems that the commotion they stir in the villages and the countryside reaches the palace. And now Herod is here asking the question. What I want to focus on just for a moment here, kind of bring out this morning, um, is just this. The fact that Herod is questioning Jesus's Identity at all. Here's what I mean by that. If it's the apostles and the ministry of the apostles, these 12 guys out in the the villages and things that caused the commotion that reached the palace. Why is he concerned about Jesus's identity, about Jesus's name? rather than the identity and name of the twelve. If they're the ones doing the work, if they're the ones out there causing the, the ruckus, why is he not going, man, who are these twelve? What's up with these twelve making you know a mess of my uh, city here, my towns? What, what What is the stir all about with these twelve? But it's not the twelve he's asking about. It's not the twelve he's perplexed about. It's jesus it's jesus who is this jesus and you see here's the critical point the 12 it would seem though they were doing the work you could say quote unquote refused to take any credit for it they were jealous to help me- people make the connection between the healings the casting out of demons, the miracles, the power, the, the, the love that they had, whatever it was, the stuff in them, they were jealous to make sure that everyone in these villages knew it's not me, it's him. It's Christ. It's Jesus, not us. We don't come in our name. We don't come in our power. We don't come for our fame. We come for the fame of his name. They would not let you think this had anything to do with them. So after all their labor, after all their ministry, only one name is left lingering in people's minds. When they leave a village, the only name those people are wondering about is who is Jesus. In fact, that's why Matthew begins his version of the story like this. Matthew 14, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus these 12 went they lived they they, what they did there was for the fame of jesus they were they were trying to make jesus famous i'm reminded of um peter in acts 3 i've been going through acts now in my devotions and i was reading this the other day acts 3 it's amazing it's incredible so so this guy's been lame from birth Right. And they would lay him out in front of the temple to kind of receive alms. And Peter rolls in one day. This is now after Pentecost. Right. And power of spirit. Jesus is on the move and he sees this guy. This guy thinks maybe he'll get some money from him. Peter says, I don't have silver. I don't got gold. But what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise, right? And so this guy, it says, you know, rises up, he's healed, he's he's leaping and praising God, and all the people around are seeing this, and they're starting to look at Peter and the apostles going, what kind of power is in these guys? What's up with these guys? We talk, or we we read about how, um, this is verse 11 of, of Acts 3, how the crowds were utterly astounded as they looked in at. At, at, at what had happened and then see the guys who did it this is how peter responds in acts 3 verse 12 read this when peter saw it in other words when he saw all the people looking in awe he addressed the people men of israel why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus and his name, by faith in his name, this man has been made strong. So he sees what's going on. He sees the opportunity for a little little glory here, right? His name up in the lights, but he won't have it. People staring, people wondering, people gawking. And he says, it's not my power. It's not my piety. It's his name. Faith in his name, nothing in me. That's the sort of thing these guys are doing, That's making Jesus, not themselves, famous in the countryside. And so the question for us then, as we begin here, is when people look upon the business and activity of your everyday life, do they make this connection? Are we living to make Jesus famous when people see, hopefully, the love that we have for our neighbors or for others? When they see the peace that you have in trial, when they see the power that you walk in. Are they brought back to kind of make that connection to the source of it all or are they left kind of thinking, man, that Nick, he's a pretty legit dude. Look at how kind, look at how happy, look at how, no, wow, I would, man, I wish I could be more like him. Are we, do we let that sit there so that my name is the name that lingers? Or are we convicted and convinced that the depths of our being, man, if there's anything good in me, if you see anything good in me, it's Christ. We live to make his name known, the fame of his name. That's really where ministry and you could say missiology begins going out for the sake of the name second uh point i was going to bring out we see there in verses 10 through 11 now a welcome interruption a welcome interruption in verse 10 we read that the apostles return from their mission and jesus takes them away to a desolate place it would seem like jesus is a good boss he sees that they need a little bit of R&R. They need some vacation time. So, okay, good work in the villages. Let's get away uh, and get a little break. He pulls them off to a desolate place to be alone. But like we did a little bit last week, when you um, compare Luke's account with the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, something interesting comes out that I couldn't bear to pass over. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told a little bit more about why Jesus pulls the disciples here away to a desolate place, why he withdraws with them. So in Matthew's account of this story, um, in between Herod's questioning, and then Jesus and the disciples' withdrawal, he places the story about John the Baptist's death. Herod's questioning the withdrawal into a desolate place. Herod's uh, the story about John the Baptist's death. Now, you recall from last time, the story is gruesome. It's it's Herod locks John the Baptist up for calling him out because um yeah, Herod wants to divorce his wife and marry his brother's wife. Well, Herodias, his brother's wife, doesn't like this. and Ultimately, Herod ends up calling for John's head to be brought to him on a platter. It is grisly. It is gruesome. It is rated R for sure. He had him executed. And then he paraded that execution around. In Matthew fourteen twelve. At the end of this story, we read this. Then John's disciples came and took the body, this headless body of John, and buried it. And here's here's, here's the key point. And they went and told Jesus about what happened. They went and told Jesus. And then Matthew's account picks up where we are here in Luke. Matthew 14, verse 13, he writes this. Now, when Jesus heard this, the news about John's beheading, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Do you hear that? So it's not just a little R&R here, although Jesus, as we'll see, is unbelievably compassionate. So he probably is mainly concerned with the disciples and their needs. But what Matthew brings out is that there is something else at work in the heart of our Savior, that he just received news also about John the Baptist, his death at the hands of Herod. And so there is an anguish of soul. There is something that Jesus is dealing with here where he's saying, I got to get away for a little bit. You see, John the Baptist was his cousin, his friend, his forerunner. John's murder would have stabbed at our Savior on numerous levels. Not only did Jesus lose a loved one, he also saw in John's death a harbinger of the death that's awaiting him at the end. Because just like Herod would stand over the corpse of John, so too Herod will stand over the corpse of Christ. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Acts 4.27. So as Jesus catches news of John's beheading, John's murder. There washes over him, it would seem, fresh revelation, fresh awareness that that's where this whole kingdom of heaven thing that John's forerunning and he's bringing in is going to end for him. The shadow of the cross, as it were, is Already upon him in the beheading of John, he can see the cross of Calvary. So he says, man, i got to get away for a little bit. Let's go, let's go, let's go. i got to talk to my father about this. i got to get reoriented towards the mission and what, what we've come to do. Now, I go into all this simply to accentuate the profound nature of what happens next in verse 11 of our text. Cause you wouldn't probably see it otherwise but read verse 11 of Luke 9 there when the crowds learned it that he that Jesus and his disciples had gone away to a desolate place they followed him like I'm not gonna let him get alone here and he what said leave me be do you know what I'm dealing with no he welcomed them He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. I mean, I just thought of this, I thought, wow. When I'm going through it, when you're going through it, are you thinking about anybody else but yourself? I got no time for anybody else. I'm trying to figure out my way out of this mess. Jesus is just so otherworldly, literally. With the shadow of the cross moving over our Savior, with with death now showing its face, he doesn't bend inward with self-pity or self-concern. He bends outward with compassion. What do you need? You need healing? All right, let's do this. What do you need? When you hear about the kingdom of God, let me tell you how awesome God is. How many of you would be ready to talk about how awesome God is if God were about to execute you for the sins of the world? Wow, that's incredible. But he welcomes them, the Greek word there, apodechamai, to receive someone favorably. It's not an interruption. These people aren't intruding onto his, into his plans and what he needs. These people are welcomed. He's happy they're here. I, just, I love pointing this sort of stuff out for us because, my goodness, I, I think we doubt his love all the time. We kind of feel like, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, like I'm an interruption to him. Like, I probably, all my needs, all my fears, all my sins, all my struggles, I'm a bother. I'm just kind of like, gosh darn it, is she really coming to me again? Is he really talking to me about this again? That's just not how our Savior is. His, his heart just gushes with compassion. That's what Matthew in his account would go on to say, that when the crowds interrupt his alone time, he he has compassion on them. Mark adds to it, he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Even though he's a sheep being led to the slaughter. But you're a sheep without a shepherd. I'll care for you. That's how he looks at you and I. That's how he approaches your... Intrusion and interruption. He's happy you're there. He's happy to see you. He welcomes you. He receives you favorably. The question from a missional perspective then for us is this. If Jesus is so approachable, even in his pain, so compassionate and welcoming, even in his own dark night of the soul, are we? You see, Jesus is convinced of the Father's care. He's convinced. Peter would tell us he kept kept entrusting himself to the one who he knows will judge justly and will raise him and vindicate him. So he doesn't have to worry about himself like we often do. He can worry himself, so to speak, with the needs of others. And so the question for us is, are we there? Or do we spend the great lion's share of our time Trying to fend for ourselves, care for our own needs. Do we really get it's more blessed to give than to receive? Because whatever I have, I've been given and God's just going to keep giving back. We're, we're taken care of, as we'll see in the last verse of this text in particular, the 12 baskets come back to the apostles. What is that? He's going to take care of his servants. Do we believe that? Do we trust him for that so that we can move out in love for others? This is the kind of people that he's making us to be more and more by his spirit, freed of self-concern, uh, hearts gushing with compassion for others. And that's exactly what we're going to see. He's now going to try to develop in his disciples. These guys are the ones who are going to carry on his mission and ministry. He's going to try to develop this mentality in them. So move now to a stubborn amnesia. Verse 12 we come to realize he's got some work to do with us right verse 12 we face what i would call again a stubborn amnesia it's this tragic theme that runs really not just through the gospels but through the entire narrative of the bible and sadly enough straight off the pages of the bible and into our lives today the Fallen nature of man is such that we are radically, profoundly forgetful of anything God has done for us. God has said. Typical rhythm in the Old Testament on through the New Testament. God does something marvelous. Something amazing, something astounding. People revel in it for a few hours, a few days. Maybe, if they're extra holy, a few weeks. And those are like, yeah, those are the saints, right? But undoubtedly, given enough time, everyone forgets about it. Everyone. The next crisis that strikes, the people act as if God can't help, as if they've never seen him intervene in a situation before, or if they did see it before, he's not doing it now. He has nothing to say. He can't do anything. His hands are tied, or perhaps he's abandoned us, left us. Where are you? It's a stubborn amnesia. Now, this is why God sets up so much in Israel that um, actually really just seems kind of like elaborate memory aids. If you look at Israel, it's amazing the things that he sets up to aid Israel's memory. Don't you forget it. I mean, this is uh, one of the reasons why he shapes the calendar in Israel the way that he does. All these these Sabbaths and these festivals and feasts like Passover, Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Booths, whatever it is, they're all designed, at least largely, to help them remember on a regular basis, on repeat, remember, 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 remember the exodus when I brought you out from your enemies and I made you my own. Remember in the wilderness how I provided for you daily with water from a rock and bread from heaven. Don't forget, because when you get to the land, you're going to. When things get hard, you're going to. One interesting thing he has them do that I'll just bring out because it... Overlaps with our text, as we'll see more plainly next week. Exodus 16 is uh, when they're talking about manna, and this bread from heaven that feeds the people of Israel. And one thing God, one of the things God says to them is, He says, "Listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some of that manna. Yeah, I said not. I, I know I said not to store it up, but I want you to store up just a little bit. I want you to put it in a jar. I want you to take it, put it next to the tablets." ultimately ends up uh, next to the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? I want you to always have before you evidence of my provision for you. That I was with you in the wilderness when your shoes didn't wear out, your clothes didn't wear out, when your bellies were filled with the food of angels. I don't want you to be able to come back in my face when things are hard and say, man, you've abandoned us. You're never there for me. I will be there for you. You have my word and you have evidence of it right here. He knows about the amnesia. He knows. But sadly, this sort of thing is exactly what's happening here in verse 12. Of Luke 9. Now the day began to wear away, we read, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Do you hear that? Send them away, Jesus. I mean, look around. We're in a desolate place. There's 5,000 men here, Matthew says, not including women and children. So some estimate anywhere from 5,000 up to 20,000 hungry people. He says, look around, man. We can't provide for these people. Send them away as as if Jesus, as if this would be too much for him. And it's crazy when you think about it. And this is what's so wonderful about teaching expositionally through books of the Bible. We know these disciples can't get off the hook here. We know what they've seen. They've seen Jesus raise a guy, girl, whatever, from the dead. They've seen him just touch a leper and the guy's healed. They've seen him do things even more amazing than this. So why would they be sending these people away from the very one they need most? Even more, in verse 11, right before verse 12, we recognize that they've been watching him do miracles right there. He's been curing anyone who had need, healing anyone who had need. That's why the day has worn on like it has, because he's busy doing the miraculous in compassion for these crowds. And yet, here they are, certain that the only thing left to do is to send these hungry people away to find food, find shelter. They don't talk with Jesus about his plans. They almost act as if they don't think he can do anything about it. It's a stubborn amnesia, and it's in us as well. We think for a moment about God's faithfulness to you. Wonder if you have stuff that could just roll off your tongue? I wonder if you have memory aids, things that 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 you've set in place to remind you of God's grace to you. I mean, Jesus will give us one. We will see it next week a little more. Do this in remembrance of me. I gave my life for you on that cross. I will not withhold. No good thing. I didn't die in vain. Think about his faithfulness to you, your own personal exodus, how God walked you out of slavery into new life. Think about his provision for you through hardship, through the wilderness. Think about the cross and his unswerving commitment. But now, isn't it true that when crisis strikes, man, we could have been just last week on our faces in awe of his grace, in awe of his provision. And then the crisis we face now, all of a sudden, God, where are you? I'm not sure that the logic we often operate in would go something like this. Present crisis trumps past provision. Do you hear me? Meaning, sure you were there for me then but this is what i'm going through now and i really i mean let's be honest i don't care about then anymore <laughs> i care about now and i don't see you now so i need you to where are you start running to other gods start listening to other gospels get me out of this he's not there but the logic of the bible moves in precisely the opposite direction namely past provision trumps present crisis meaning if god was faithful then he will be faithful now get that that's the meaning of covenant like Hebrews would tell us he swore an oath, he made a covenant, but it's also the meaning of the doctrine of God. That's why he, the author of Hebrews says, not only did he swear an oath, so we can be sure, but we also can be sure because God's the one who said it, and God can't lie, because God doesn't change. God doesn't go, ah, I meant that then, and now I don't. God's not that little fickle boyfriend that likes you when you wear that dress, but doesn't like you when you're in your sweats. That's not how it works. I don't know where that illustration came from. <laughs> <laughs> that was weird, <laughs> but it's the truth. It's the truth. I can't remember where it is, but it might also be in Hebrews, where, where 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 we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The logic of the Bible is, man, past faithfulness ensures present faithfulness in whatever crisis. You're dealing with. Now. God forbid, therefore. When crisis strikes that we should look somewhere else. But even more than that, God forbid that if there are others in our lives whom God has called us to minister to and they're going through hard times, they're in the wilderness, they're in a desolate place. God forbid we are called to bring them to Christ. How dare we send them away somewhere else? Ah uh, you need counseling i think uh you You need better education you- I know what you need. You need a better job. You need the right medicine now, sure, people might need these things, but before they need any of that stuff, they need him. Don't send them away. Bring them to him. Satisfying Savior now. And this is where we'll bring things to a close. Verses 13 to 17. Jesus knows that anyone who wants to be God's missionary will be tried on this point. He doesn't let his disciples get away with their logic. Get away with it. So he says to them. If you see it there, verse 13, the very beginning, he said to them, you, I love this, you give them something to eat. They say, send them away. This is crazy. Nobody can meet the needs of these people. Jesus said, you can. You give them something to eat. I look at that. I said, that is amazing. You just got to love Jesus. He knows what he's doing. Now, let's be clear on this. Jesus is not shirking responsibility. Like, I've done enough. It's on you now. Second string, you're in. No, that's not what's happening. He's not shirking responsibility. He's not asking the disciples to come up with something in and of themselves. No, what he's doing is training them. This is pedagogy. This is instruction. In fact, John would tell us even more clearly in his account. It's awesome having all these different accounts of the same story. Uh, John tells us in John 6, 6, Jesus said this to test them. For he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. I know what I'm going to do. I just want to make sure you're coming along with me in it. You see these needs, that's awesome. Let's meet these needs. You give them something to eat. You want to know what I think he's after here? I think he wants, and this is huge. If you're falling asleep, please listen. I think he wants the, their compassion our compassion to exceed our capacity. I think he wants his disciples to stop for a moment and go, wow, I see the great need. I guess I can't, you know, uh, serve here and do anything here. This is way beyond my pay grade. I think he's trying to say, no, I want your compassion, your heart, your love for these people to exceed what you even think is possible. To exceed your capacity. I want your heart to be so broken with the needs of others that you come running to God, begging on their behalf that he'd do something. I can't do it, God, but I know you can. And I'm willing, do it through me if that's what you want. He wants our compassion to exceed our capacity. That's the lesson here. That's the test, and they fail. Verse 13, second part into the first part of 14, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. They fail the test, for there were 5,000, and they look out and go, no way, no way the command to give the crowd food necessarily sends the disciples looking for resources but they make the mistake that we often make here's what here's what they do they look out and then they look immediately in there's the need i don't got it must not be my call <laughs> and they assume there's nothing left to do but send the people away In their looking out and in their looking in, they miss miss the most important glance, the most important look of all. And it's the one that Jesus reorients them and us to in verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, we read, he looked up. He looked up to heaven. As if to say, I know you see the great need. I know you see the great shortage within yourself. Gosh, but together, let's look up and see the great supply in our Heavenly Father. He's going to give us what we need to meet these people where they are. So Jesus looks up, he blesses, he breaks, he gives, and the disciples set the meal before the masses, and they all ate and were satisfied for seventeen. Satisfied, filled. Even the twelve apostles, as I mentioned earlier, were satisfied. Were taken care of. That's the awesome little detail of that narrative that scholars disagree exactly why it's there. Twelve baskets. Why are they picking up pieces and putting them in twelve baskets? What do I think? The clear. Correlation, correspondence with that number is to the 12 apostles who are ministering. The idea is you give and you give and you give. Are you going to be taken care of? Isn't that what stops your compassion? A lot of times, man, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I can't do this. Jesus is trying to teach them. God takes care of us so that we can spend our lives taking care of others. Now, I don't get this like I wish I did, but the 12 baskets is speaking something eloquent to us here. The disciples didn't just get to eat. They also went home with the leftovers, man. There was bread and fish in their fridge for a week. It's like what um, Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 58, 10 through 11. He writes this, If you pour yourself out for the hungry, And satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden. Did you hear that? like a spring of water whose waters never fail because you're plugging into the fountain of living water when you get in his mission like this giving to others you say i thought i was pouring out you are but god's pouring in you say, i thought i was feeding i was getting his i thought i was feeding the crowds well you are God is feeding you. Jesus would say, this is my bread to do the will of my father. That's how I get fed. That's where satisfaction goes deeper than the belly and the bowels. man. The heart, the soul. Now, I this is where we'll close. I, I don't think God has anywhere given us a more vivid picture of what it means to be his ministers or his missionaries than this text here. I think it's amazing. We'll see next time that the bread and the fish broken there really uh, come to symbolize um, Christ's body broken for us. I mean, there's clear parallels even to the Lord's Supper. John tells us this also is happening at the Passover. There's all these things we'll look at a little bit next time. Just know, it's not just food for your belly here. This is the grace of the gospel coming from the Messiah to the crowds. And here's what's so great. Jesus breaks, but then he gives, not to the crowd, to his people, to then set before the crowd. We get to set the table. He's the one who cooked the food. He's the one who who, who did all the work. We just get to set that accomplishment, set that grace, set that glory, set that provision before others. We are not the source of it, but we do get the privilege of distributing it, of stewarding it, of serving it. That's what the ministry is. It's incredible. The you of verse 13, you give them something to eat, actually does wrap back around in verse 16. They do. They are the ones who give the crowd something to eat. They are the ones who set the food in front of the people. They're just not the source of it. Resources didn't come from them. The upward glance. Crucified Messiah. Grace. Living water. poured out. Watered garden. Now, there is great encouragement for us here. I don't know if you've ever felt insufficient to be a Christian, to be a minister, which you are if you're a Christian, to be a missionary, which you are if you're a Christian. I don't know if you've ever felt insufficient for the mission fields that God's put you in, whether it's to your neighbor, coworkers, within the church, or even perhaps if you're a parent with kids. That's a scary mission field. Feel insufficient for that. Perhaps it would encourage you to know that Paul the Apostle felt the same way. He just didn't end there. In 2 Corinthians 2.16. 2 Corinthians 2 all the way to 2 Corinthians 4. has meant so much to me as a minister. But I'll just read to you a little bit. 2 Corinthians 2.16 as Paul's considering the work of gospel ministry, it's as if he just kind of erupts with this question, who? Who is sufficient for these things? Who can do this stuff? The implicit answer is nobody. Nobody is sufficient to bring the gospel of the glory of Christ to people. Nobody who's worthy to bring that kind of message nobody but he goes on to write this in chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 such is the confidence that we have through christ toward god not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us but our sufficiency is from god the upward glance Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? It's him. You see, this is the most amazing thing. It's not me that we're giving away. I don't have to have the answers. In fact, sometimes my brokenness just serves to bring him more glory. I say, You broken, I'm broken too. Let's meet him at the cross. You can do that with your kids, you can do that with your coworkers, you can do that with your neighbors. It's not about us being the the perfect whole ones. We're the broken people who just have found the one who can put us back together and meet us in our need and deal with our amnesia with patience and show compassion to us. We're not bothering him. He's there, arms up. We can lead people there. We go there too. That's why later Paul would say, and this is the last text I'll read you here, in chapter 4, verse 7 of Second Corinthians, we have this treasure, the gospel of grace. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm the jar of clay, broken earthen vessel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When they see stuff coming from us, they just go, it's kidding me, Nick. And if they don't see that connection, I make sure it's plain. It ain't me. It's him. He's given us such treasure to give away, though we're unworthy of being its courier. Steward. So I don't know. You feel insufficient. You feel like a broken vessel. You feel like God's benched you. You feel like you look out and, and, and then you look in. You don't have the resources. Paul felt the same, the apostles felt the same, doesn't stop Jesus from using you anyways. He loves to take up broken instruments, broken vessels, broken people, and use them to lead others to the table. He was broken for you. He's giving himself to you. He will supply everything you need to set before the crowd. Let's pray. God thank you. Thank you that you not only call us to the work you equip us. And not only call and equip, you satisfy us in the midst of it. Lord, a lot of us are feeling empty. Ironically, because all we do is consume. All we do is look for the next thing that we can devour that might fill us. And what we gather from from our text is that what will fill us is pouring ourselves out. Entering into this mission field with you, our Savior, where you are. Spirit with us. Making us sufficient. God, our joy is found in being poured out as an, as a drink offering, like Paul would say. To live is Christ, to die as gain. We pray. That we would live lives honoring you. We pray even now. You would meet us at the cross, Lord. Fill us with the grace we need. So that when we go out from here. We can set that same grace before others. In Jesus' name.